Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I have to say, I know at the beginning of every episode, I say how thrilled I am uh, and how amazing an episode we have, but I really, really am thrilled this time because, as listeners will know, ever since I read Jason Fung's book, The Obesity Code, I have been really taken with intermittent fasting and very interested in how it works and the potential health benefits. And then, recently, I opened the New England Journal And there is an article about intermittent fasting, reviewing the evidence for the benefits of it by uh, Dr. Mark Mattson as the senior author. Uh, And I thought, oh, I have to try to get him on the show. And I'm so grateful that he has agreed to come on. Dr. Mattson is a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins and really one of the world experts on intermittent fasting. And I'm thrilled to have him here to talk about it. And we will also, we'll talk about it kind of in general and then also about some perioperative implications of this. Dr. Madsen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, Jed, I'm, I'm happy to converse with you today and, and looking forward to interesting discussion. Awesome. All right. Well, let me start by uh, just going very basic here. Um, you've been really interested in this uh, for a long time, but let me just ask about you. So tell us a little bit about kind of who you are, what you do, and how this became an interest for you. Uh, yeah, I'm trained as a neuro, neuroscientist. And I was a lab chief at the National Institute on Aging for 20 years. And, of course, there our work was mainly focused around brain aging, age-related neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases. And uh, as part of that, we did a lot of fundamental work at the cellular molecular level, on the one hand trying to understand what happens during normal aging, what goes wrong in these neurodegenerative disorders, and on the other hand, trying to understand what signaling mechanisms uh, uh, might protect the brain uh, against these adversities of aging. Yeah, So, and that kind of got you interested in looking at this. Yeah, uh, it, it was no, it's been known for a long time that... Uh, daily calorie restriction will extend lifespan in rats and mice. Uh, so it has kind of an anti-aging effect, if you will. And it turns out the way most of the studies are done uh, with daily calorie restriction uh, is such that the animals are given 
all their food and one allotment each day, and one that amount of food is say thirty to forty percent less than they'd normally eat uh, if they uh, could eat as much as they want. It turns out the animals eat all of their food within a four to six hour time window, so they're actually fasting for eighteen to twenty hours every day. And um, and back in the nineteen nineties uh, and. I should also say um, a colleague of mine at the NIA, he's retired as well, uh, Don Ingram, had shown in the 80s that every other day fasting in rats and mice extends their lifespan by up to 80%. Uh, and so in the 90s, we got interested uh, in this from the standpoint of brain aging. We asked a simple question. If we maintain rats or mice on an uh, intermittent fasting feeding uh, schedule, uh, will it protect nerve cells in experimental models that are relevant to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, as well as acute brain injuries such as stroke? Right. And so, you know, what a fascinating area of research. Um, well, let's get back to that in a minute. Let me let me ask you from a kind of very basic standpoint, uh, what when we say intermittent fasting, what does that mean? Is there a specific definition? What does it mean to you? Intermittent fasting is an eating pattern. Uh, it's not a diet. It's an eating pattern uh, in which uh, there's time periods with no calorie intake sufficient to deplete energy stores in the liver, which is essentially glucose, and then tap into the fat stores. Uh, the fatty acids are released from those cells into the blood. They go into the liver, and they're converted to ketones. So intermittent fasting is an eating pattern in which there are uh, periods where this metabolic switch occurs, and that can be detected, say, clinically by simply taking blood and measuring ketone levels. Okay. So... If you're producing, if you're not eating for long enough to produce ketones, then that's a pretty reasonable definition of a fast. That's right, and that typically in a person just during during normal daily activities uh, takes uh, at least ten to twelve hours to deplete the liver energy stores. The liver typically has about six to seven hundred calories worth of energy, and of course, if you exercise. Uh, then that's going to deplete the liver stores more quickly and the metabolic switch will occur more quickly. Okay. Right. And so when people run a marathon and they, you know, quote unquote, hit the wall, part of that is mm. depleting their glycogen stores in their liver. And uh, that of course is happening within, you know, a couple of hours of running a marathon because you're using those calories very quickly. Is that right? That's right. And in fact, there's a lot of interest now uh, among endurance athletes in uh, starting an event in the fasted ketogenic state so that this uh, down period of performance, hitting the wall, as you say, uh, doesn't occur. Interesting. So you, if you're already burning ketones and doing that efficiently, then you, you don't need to worry about your glycogen running out because you're not relying on it anyway. That's right. And from an evolutionary perspective, this all makes a lot of sense in the uh, with, with regards to animals in the wild, including uh, humans, hunter-gatherers. Uh, so 
they don't uh, wake up uh, after sleeping and food is waiting for them. So they have to work for the food, uh, both cognitively, their brain has to be able to figure out, you know, make decisions on where to go, what kind of food source they want to tap into, and then they have to expend a lot of energy. So from an evolutionary perspective, it's natural to uh, expend a lot of physical energy in the fasted state. Right. And, you know, speaking of historical perspectives, I mean, you know, it does seem to make a lot of sense, first of all, that uh, for most of our, I mean, the vast, vast majority of our history, we were not doing what we do now. And you bring this up in, in your article that, you know, what the majority of Americans and, and probably much wider than just America, but are doing is eating pretty much constantly. So three meals a day, snacks in between, a midnight snack, an early morning donut. There's very few hours without food going in. Um, people sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and go grab a bite uh, and then try to go back to sleep. So, you know, uh, some people probably aren't going more than three or four hours ever without food. And that is very different than how we evolved. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, also, if you think about it, um, well, what I want to talk about if we get time is what's happening at the level of organs and cells in response to switching back and forth between uh, a fasting period, uh, ketogenic state, and then back to a, a fed state, and how this switching back and forth may uh, optimize health and protect cells against injury and disease. And when we get to talking about, um, for example, uh, surgery and uh, you know trauma uh, what what I want to talk about is that it takes a while for systems to adapt to intermittent fasting and uh, it's kind of like a preconditioning effect which I think most of your listeners will be familiar with where if you expose uh, a tissue to a mild stress then they will become more resistant with you know, repeated low exposure to stress to more severe stress. And that's right. essentially what intermittent fasting do. It's a kind of a moderate level of uh, preconditioning. Okay. So you're putting your body and cells and system under stress of not having glucose and having to adapt to using ketones. And then uh, that, you know, not only makes it easier the next time, but also has a, a variety of downstream effects that carry over into the non-fasting state. That's right. Um, great. So, you know, let's um, maybe since since it came up, let's just talk about that a little. Do you want to say a few words about, you know, um, the the those effects on the cellular level? What is happening? Why is it beneficial uh, for um for us to have this switch back and forth and, and therefore, you know, less beneficial or detrimental to be constantly using glucose and never using ketones. Okay. I'll, I'll start with uh, the fact that during fasting, uh, cells will reduce their uh, protein synthesis. Uh, and there's a pathway called the mTOR, M-T-O-R, target of rapamycin 
pathway, uh, which is kind of a master regulator of protein synthesis. During fasting, the mTOR pathway is uh, reduced, and overall protein synthesis goes down. Uh, however, the cells uh, can still upregulate expression of proteins that are critical for their uh, stress resistance and being able to endure uh, this uh, bioenergetic challenge. And associated with downregulation of mTOR is upregulation of autophagy, which is essentially a mechanism whereby the cell recycles uh, usually damaged proteins, uh, dysfunctional mitochondria. So it's conserving, uh, it's conserving uh, components, recycling amino acids. Uh, and so during the fasting, the cell goes into a stress resistance mode, uh, kind of a non-growth mode. Then during the recovery period, after eating, mTOR pathway is activated, uh, amino acids are taken up, proteins are synthesized, and cells can then grow and repair uh, any damage that's occurred. Um, so this is kind of a, the general notion. It's, there's a lot more complexity to it. For example, also activated during the fasting period are antioxidant stress response pathways, for example, one pathway called the NRF2, nuclear regulatory factor 2 pathway. That pathway, when it's active, stimulates the production of a number of different antioxidant enzymes. Uh, also upregulated is DNA repair. Uh, yeah. my, my lab showed that a number of years ago. We collaborated with Dr. Will Bohr at the National Institute on Aging, who's an expert on DNA damage and repair. Uh, and then there's, there's a strong analogy with the effects of intermittent fasting on cells and the effects of exercise on muscle cells. And so similar to what I just said, uh, with exercise, your muscle cells don't grow in size and get structurally stronger during the exercise. It's during the resting period that that happens. During the exercise, it's a stress, actually quite a large stress if you're doing a vigorous workout on muscle cells. And many of these same pathways that I mentioned <coughs> are activated in muscle cells in response to exercise uh, as are activated in response to fasting. And then finally, there's another pathway uh, first discovered in muscle cells. It's activated in response to exercise and it stimulates the proliferation of mitochondria, the growth and division of mitochondria. It's a process called mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, and so uh, this pathway is controlled by a transcription factor called PGC1-alpha. And it turns out uh, people who studied muscle also found that uh, fasting will upregulate this same pathway. And then during the feeding period, uh, 
there's a proliferation of mitochondria. So in muscle, in response to exercise, that makes a lot of sense. The exercise will, over time, increase the number of mitochondria in each muscle cell, which then provides more energy for those cells uh, and at least partially contributes to the increased endurance with um, regular exercise. Right. That's really interesting. What? So it makes a ton of sense, as you said, for muscles. If you exercise, then that muscle would want more mitochondria for the next exercise. Why do you think it happens with fasting? What's the reason that fasting would uh, would cause muscle cells to produce more mitochondria? Um, I think we have to think about this again, go back to the evolutionary perspective. Um, so the notion would be that... Uh, Individuals whose brains and bodies function best uh, in the food-deprived state uh, are more successful in acquiring enough food to survive and reproduce and pass their genes on. So uh, perhaps individuals whose cells did not respond to fasting by upregulating these pathways uh, were less successful because they're, and then uh, I'm a neuroscientist. And so most of our work has been on what happens in the brain in response to intermittent fasting as well as exercise. And essentially the kind of the bottom line is from a number of different studies, for example, manipulating genetically PGC one alpha, uh, knocking it down in neurons, in the brain, uh, and then asking, how does how do the neurons respond to intermittent fasting or or activation of some of the pathways that are engaged by intermittent fasting? And so the evidence we have suggests that intermittent fasting will stimulate the formation of new synapses between neurons and can. Uh, improve learning and memory, not immediately. Uh, interestingly, we find it takes at least two to four weeks before we can detect uh, these changes. Well, the synaptic changes, some of them occur a little quicker. Uh, so what we think is happening is during the fasted state, signaling pathways are activated that then set the cells up to grow better form new synapses and function better uh, in the fed state. So again, the switching back and forth uh, seems to enable the cells to uh, uh, enhance their plasticity. Right. And that, so it's really the, again, the intermittent nature of it, which is, as you said, how we evolved as hunter gatherers, et cetera. So on a so that's great. That's the kind of basic, you know, the the science level, the what's happening at the cellular level. What about uh, in terms of how that translates to disease? Because you cite all kinds of just fascinating, you know, connections. So uh, that intermittent fasting may help to reduce uh, the risk of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, diabetes, and insulin sensitivity, um, and potentially increase lifespan. So uh, you know the the way that the uh, cellular changes are translating is potentially having this, these very significant effects. Um, do we know, you know, how, kind of what level of confidence do we have about some of that stuff? Like, can, can, do you feel comfort, uh, you know, confident saying, 
uh, intermittent fasting is going to reduce your risk of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera? Uh, no, we, we can't say for sure yet, um, but the evidence is getting stronger and stronger. The data from animal studies are strong. And what we can say in humans, uh, there have been uh, scores of studies of intermittent fasting in overweight humans. And uh, pretty much uniformly, what's found is that risk factors for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and stroke, and even cancers are improved uh, in people who are adapted to intermittent fasting. And so these include reduced fasting glucose and insulin levels, um, uh, reduced circulating markers of inflammation and oxidative stress. There's also improvements in lipid profiles, decreased triglycerides. Uh, and then with regards to neurodegenerative disorders, it's weaker. Uh, and it's in humans, it's again based on risk factors. There's pretty strong epidemiological evidence now that people who are uh, uh, chronically overweight during their adult life, and particularly those with diabetes, are at increased risk for cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's if they uh, live uh, long enough, <laughs> if they live into their 70s, for example, and 80s. Uh, and then there's also a lot of evidence from animal studies that uh, and we have various models we can cause induced diabetes in animals genetically or through other means, toxins that damage the insulin producing cells. And in these animal models, uh, cognition is impaired. And in if we, for example, put quote unquote Alzheimer's mice that get amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary degeneration of neurons in their brains, if we put them on uh, high-fat fructose or sugar diet, then that uh, sort of bad, unhealthy diet will accelerate the brain pathology and accelerate the onset and progression of cognitive impairment. Um, okay. You know, so uh, strong data in animal studies, but that's, uh, of course, a lot of times what pans out in animals, particularly with drug development, uh, doesn't necessarily translate to humans. But I'm, I'm pretty confident based on uh, animal data and human epidemiological data that, and clinical trials that of intermittent fasting that risk factors for these age-related diseases will be reduced. Yeah. And you know, what I think is so interesting is that there's, even if the evidence isn't clear cut, and even if we can't say, you know, you definitely will reduce your risk of cancer, or Alzheimer's, et cetera, by doing this, uh, you know, if there's even a chance that you could, and there's no harm to it, then why wouldn't you? And I think the answer is a lot of people think that fasting is just not something they can do. I mean, it sounds terrible. This is not eating, right? I mean, do people get, they say, I get hangry. I, I can't, can't not eat. But so much of it, and you bring this up in the article, 
is just about getting used to it that you know if you give your if you for example if you drop breakfast you're going to be hungry in the morning for a little while but you know i've been doing this now for a, at least a year year and a half maybe two years and you know i don't get hungry in the morning anymore right but of course i did when i the day after i stopped eating breakfast so you know uh, it's very doable if you kind of get over that hump so i think that people are way more intimidated by the by the idea of doing intermittent fasting uh, kind of inappropriately so because once you once you do it you find actually it's very easy to do yes that's exactly right uh, in our new england journal article we the last figure uh, we put some kind of ideas on how physicians might help patients who are interested in switching to intermittent fasting eating pattern uh, accomplish that. Uh, and it's based on a lot of human studies in which I was involved in some, but many others would pretty much uniformly show that it, it takes people two to four weeks to adapt to the new eating pattern so that they're no longer hungry and irritable during the time period that they would have previously been eating. And it's exactly as you described, Jed, uh, uh, you know, obviously, if you've been eating breakfast your whole life and stop eating uh, or don't eat breakfast one day, you're going to be very hungry. Your whole physiology is adapted to that eating pattern. Uh, and so it, it just takes not too long, actually, to adapt to the eating pattern. People could ease into it if they want to. You know, if their goal is to narrow the time window, they eat each day to say six to eight hours, then they can start by just narrowing it to 12 for a couple of weeks, then 10 or, uh, or whatever. But a lot of people find skipping breakfast easy uh, you know, once they're adapted and find that they're, once they're adapted, they're more cognitively sharp uh, and alert in the morning. There's no postprandial sleepiness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Now, let me ask you, uh, you know, Sachi Panda has done a lot of work on circadian eating and, um, you know, actually suggests that maybe it matters more kind of when you eat in the day uh, and suggests the opposite of what I think a lot of us do, which is skipping breakfast. He suggests eating, you know, more earlier in the day uh, and then you know, maybe skipping dinner. Do you, what do you think about that? Is there anything to be said for, you know, if let's say you're going to do 18 hours of fasting a day, does it matter if the six hours of eating are from, you know, 6 a.m. to noon or from noon to 6 p.m. or not? Uh, we don't know in humans. Uh, the studies haven't been done. Uh, Dr. Pa Panda, he uh, done a lot of work in mice where he found that uh, if he restricts the food intake to say eight hours during the dark period, which is the active period for rodents, they're nocturnal, uh, and then has them on a high fat diet, which would normally cause obesity when they're fat ad libitum, then the animals don't get obese. Whereas if he gives them the food uh, in the daytime, when they'd normally be sleeping, then they still get obese. Uh, but the studies haven't been done in humans yet. Um, 
So, and I, you know, from a practical standpoint too, it's uh, not good to eat within a few hours of when you go to sleep, particularly from the standpoint of something like gastric reflux. Right. Yeah, I certainly find that I sleep better when I don't eat right before bed. And, you know, what I've, I've read is that as recently as, you know, the, the 50s and 60s, uh, so not that long ago, that, you know, most people were having dinner at, you know, 6 p.m. and then, uh, you know, breakfast at maybe 8, 8.30 a.m. So, first of all, people would eat at 6 and then, you know, go to bed at 9 or 10. So, there were, there were three, four hours between uh, dinner and bedtime. And everybody was fasting 14 hours a day because, you know, 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. So, uh, so that was just a very different pattern. And now, you know, you wonder if some of the, for example, you know, it seems like everybody these days has reflux. And, you know, if some of this is because we are now uh, with our whatever it may be, crazy work schedules and everything, you know, we're eating at 8 or 9 p.m. and going to bed a half an hour later. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. So, okay. Now, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I have a, a wonderful uh, brother who's a MD-PhD uh, scientist, and um, he said to – we were talking about this, and he said to me, well, you know, um, I'm not sure that, that mice uh, are a good uh, surrogate for human nutrition. And he talked about a paper by uh, a scientist named Hu and colleagues uh, published in Cell Metabolism in 2018 that looked at um, feeding mice, and you just alluded to this, dietary fat, um, causing them to develop fat, which, you know, I think we think that's not so true in humans, that, it's, that eating fat, so a high fat, low carb diet maybe is healthier in humans than, and would be less, uh, would produce less fat uh, production than a high carb, low fat diet. So, you know, uh, do we think I mean, does that call into question uh, whether mice uh, work the same as humans and whether, whether the kind of animal data in mice is useful when we think about human nutrition? Uh, well, yeah, I think a lot of the data is useful, uh, particularly... So when you talk about nutrition, generally you think of uh, how much a person is eating and what they're eating and not how often. And so, um, yeah, I, uh, mice and rats are uh, vegetarians. You know, they're not carnivores or omnivores. So they, they evolved eating only uh, carbs. And so you put them on a high-fat diet they that could explain maybe in large part why they're not able to deal with that and they become fat on high fat diet where as that isn't necessarily true uh, for humans um, and so on the other hand there's been a lot of studies in mice and rats feeding them high carb diet and showing that uh, caloric restriction and intermittent fasting is beneficial there too. And it seems like the simple sugar intake is a big contributor to a recent epidemic of obesity in humans. Right. So that's interesting. So, you know, it sounds like the 
just the basic evolution of mice has been different in terms of what they, uh, their diet has been. And so there may be some things like fat versus carbs and the consequences of eating those in mice and humans that are different, but on a cellular level, in terms of kind of what you were talking about at the, when we started the, the adaptation to that switching from glucose to ketones and back, that may be something that's kind of more deeply conserved and, and maybe, uh, kind of true across species. Yes, that's right. Okay. So, uh, in your review, you know, you, you, I think did a really nice job of, of citing a lot of evidence kind of for the benefits, but then, you know, you kind of at the end of, of some of the paragraphs, you'd come back and say, you know, there are some counter examples. So for example, you cited a study by Trepanowski and colleagues that didn't show improvement in insulin sensitivity and some other factors with alternate day fasting. And so, you know, there, there were many studies that did, and then, you know, this, at least this study that did not, why do you think there's, there's some mixed data? I mean, is it just kind of like study design? Do you feel like it's, you know, pretty safe to say that with at least things like insulin sensitivity, the vast majority of the, of the data would support fasting as beneficial. What do you think is going on with the, you know, with some of these counterexamples? Yeah, that, the, the counterexample you mentioned uh, could be this, the strain of rat or mice. There may be variability, but I think uh, when we talk about insulin resistance and glucose regulation, we don't have to even uh, consider the animal studies much because pretty much all the human studies are showing uh, beneficial effects. Right. I think that's, that's, you know, if there's one area from, from my understanding, that's the kind of the most clear cut here in human studies, it's that is the insulin sensitivity and the, and the diabetics and, you know, Jason Fung, who uh, published the obesity code, uh, you know, talks a lot about uh, his work clinically where he, you know, in his clinic where he's seeing uh, obese diabetics and he, uh, his kind of number one tool is fasting and he gets them to fast and reverses their diabetes routinely because it gets them completely non-diabetic. Um, and so, you know, it's hard in the face of that kind of, uh, human data to, to really, I think have too much doubt about the efficacy for something like that. I think Chad, it it won't be long before, uh, we'll be able to be more conclusive on, uh, the potential ability of intermittent fasting to treat human diseases. There's now a lot a lot, uh, at least 20 some that I know of studies of intermittent fasting in various patient populations. Uh, and we, we put a table in our New England journal article as a supplement that listed some of the clinical trials in cancers in inflammatory diseases, several in diabetes, uh, multiple sclerosis. Ellen Mowry has done, who's at Hopkins, has done one pilot study. She's planning another one. Uh, So, you know, these are relatively easy studies to do in humans, easy to get through the internal review board, and, uh, you know, safe for most uh, patient populations. Right. Yeah, well, that's exciting because we should see a lot more uh, data coming out, as you say. Um, Let me ask, you know, we talk a lot about, and of course, it makes sense to think about, and I'm sure these studies are looking at treating human disease, whether that's obesity, diabetes, et cetera, with fasting. Do you think there's any 
advantage for healthy people to do intermittent fasting. So, you know, uh, again, my brother wrote, I, I, I loved his, his uh, line here. He says, lower blood pressure is good for people with hypertension, but that doesn't mean people with normal blood pressure should take antihypertensives. And so, you know, when we think about obviously, uh, well, maybe not obviously, but there's strongly, I think we can say we strongly believe uh, that, you know, uh, obese diabetics should uh, consider taking, uh, doing some fasting. What about healthy people? Any reason, uh, any data out there or reason to say we should be suggesting to people who are otherwise completely healthy, maybe exercising regularly, et cetera, that they should add to their routine uh, intermittent fasting? Uh I'll ask you this, Jed. Does your brother exercise? <laughs> he does. He, uh, and he plays- does, does he have normal blood pressure? Yeah, he does. Well, then he doesn't need to exercise. Why is he exercising? <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's, that's a- it's the same, exactly the same thing. You know, uh, you can, exercise improves your health. Uh, it's really good for your brain, mood, even cognition, in addition to the cardiovascular system. So, uh, yeah, I, again, go to the analogy between exercise and fasting. They're both intermittent fasting. They seem to be both good for general health. Um, and uh, there's more and more studies being done and a few published in normal weight, young, healthy people. They Those studies have mostly focused on resistance training and showed that uh, healthy people can increase their muscle mass uh, if they're on intermittent fasting just as well as whether they're on uh, their regular eating pattern and they're, uh, they're, they're able to lose some fat more when they're on intermittent fasting. Uh, in right. And actually bodybuilders have known this for decades and decades and they often skip breakfast do their weightlifting at lunchtime and then eat uh an ensuing six to eight hours right well i love that example of comparing you know fasting to exercise and i think what people might say is well i like exercising right i i i you know go out and play a game of basketball or squash or whatever and that's enjoyable whereas fasting would be would be horrible. And I think, again, that gets to the misunderstanding. You know, I uh, don't do this because I'm diabetic or unhealthy. And, you know, I am lucky to at the moment in my life be very healthy and don't need to do it to to treat any disease. But I I do it because just like exercise, which, you know, I feel better when I exercise, I feel better when I do intermittent fasting. You mentioned before the kind of clarity of mind in the morning when you're fasted. And I find that absolutely that, you know, I am very sharp in the morning. I don't get, you know, tired. I don't get uh, that, you know, I mean, it's been a while since I've had breakfast, but I, you know, used to when I eat breakfast, have that kind of postprandial, uh, you know, sleepiness and, you know, I don't get that at all. You're very sharp. Um, and even longer fasts, you know, I've done three, four day fasts and, you know, you find you don't get particularly um, uh, sleepy or weak or, or the things you might think would happen. Uh, yeah. Uh Again, going back to your brother, it's so someone who's been sedentary for years and years, uh, and then if they were to go out and try to run five miles, they probably wouldn't feel so good at the end of that. Uh, 
until they get in shape. You know, so right. yeah, your brother feels good uh, when he exercises regularly, but it took some time for him to get in shape and start feeling good. And so it's, again, similar to intermittent fasting. It takes a while, as I mentioned, two to four weeks. Uh, and then it's, uh, you know, you may, I don't know if you've eaten breakfast much at all, Jed, lately, but you may not feel good if you eat breakfast after right. you've switched it. No. Right, just like somebody who's used to working out and then stops working out for a week straight would probably feel terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, uh, again, Jason Fung talks in his book, Ob The Obesity Code, talks about how uh, caloric restriction, so people who go on a diet and say, all right, you know, I'm going to cut my calories, uh, you know, pretty severely, um, but still eat. That's when you get the headaches and the, you know, your, your body temperature drops and you feel terrible and you feel weak and, you know, you're tired all the time because your body is, is trying to adjust down so that it doesn't lose weight. It's trying to fight it. It's trying to say, okay, well, fine. If you're going to cut your calories by 500 calories a day, I'm going to cut my body temperature. So, so we burn fewer calories. So we match that. Right. And so that's when you feel terrible, but fasting, right. Your full fast, true fasting, where you're not eating anything, your sympathetic system actually ramps up. It, it, often you feel more energy. Yeah. 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 Um, that's exactly. Yeah, same and, with exercise, right? You, uh, you expend a lot of exercise and then you feel like you have more energy. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, but it takes time to get there. But so let me ask you, what is the difference between caloric restriction and intermittent fasting? Um, you know, uh, is there some studies in, in your review from the New England Journal that look at caloric restriction in, in mice, for example, um, versus intermittent fasting? You mentioned that kind of the initial studies looking at uh, caloric restriction kind of ended up inadvertently testing intermittent fasting because they were only feeding the mice or the mice when allowed to eat, you know, a certain number of calories, we eat them all within the short window of time. But uh, do we think that fasting is more effective than caloric restriction? Uh, I'll point to two studies, one that we published in PNAS in 2003, where we found that in a certain strain of mice, uh, when we put them on alternate day fasting, feeding schedule, the mice on the days they do have food eat uh, essentially twice as much food as they would normally eat. And therefore, over time, they're not calorie restricted. Right. And yet, and yet we found that uh, in those mice, uh, on intermittent fasting with no caloric restriction, they had improvements in glucose regulation. And then we found that neurons in their brain were more resistant to um, epileptic seizure-induced damage. And then, as far as human studies, um, we collaborated with Michelle Harvey in England, uh, two pretty fairly big studies, 100 women in each study, overweight women. And in each study, they were randomly assigned to either what's now called 5-2 intermittent fasting approach where two days a week they eat only about 600 calories the other five days eat normally uh, then the other group uh, we had them 
eat three meals a day spaced out, but each meal had about 20 to 25 percent fewer calories than their uh, their estimated daily calorie intake for for each person. And so both, and these were six month studies. The only difference between the two studies was that in the second study, on the two days that they were eating only 600 calories, uh, they were eating uh, essentially no carbs, uh, so that that then they won't feel as hungry, at least uh, when they first start. So then, um, anyway, at the end of the six months, both groups of women lost about the same amount of weight, but the women on the intermittent fasting eating schedule, they lost more abdominal fat and had greater improvements in insulin sensitivity than did the women uh, who were calorie restricted. So women uh, who had the metabolic switch occurring two days a week uh, had improvements that were better than the women who had calorie reduced calories, but maybe little or no metabolic switching because they spaced the meals out. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so that I think speaks, as you say, to the fact that it's it's probably um, even with the same amount of calories, uh, it, the fasting itself has a benefit. And then similarly, you know, the question does come up, is it the weight loss? Because often when you fast, you will uh, uh, lose weight. Uh, or when you do intermittent fasting, people will often lose weight. Is it the weight loss? or the fasting that's beneficial. But as you said, in the study you just talked about, both groups lost the same amount of weight, but the, there were more benefits to the fasting group. So there must be something about fasting separate from weight loss that's beneficial. Yeah, that's right. Um, so when, um, when people are doing this, some people are actually you know, getting these little finger stick uh, testers and they're testing their, uh, their ketones. Is there a... You know, do we know, is there a certain level needed to get the benefits? Is any ketosis enough? Um, is there any reason to think that, you know, longer fasts are better? Anything like that? Well, um, it's interesting. Uh, there, there have been studies where blood has been taken at different time points up to several days after the initiation of fasting. And what what's seen is that during the first 12 to 24 between 12 about 12 and 24 hours there's a increase from essentially undetectable levels to about 0.2 to 0.5 millimolar and then after 24 hours for example 48 hours the ketones have gone up into the approximately two millimolar level. Uh, so all I can say is that uh, improvements in risk factors for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke occur with uh, even these smaller time windows where there's a this small, it's actually not small because you're coming from undetectable up to 0.2 to 0.5 millimolar range is sufficient. Whether the question of longer fast, uh, it gets a little complicated because uh, first, there haven't been many studies done on 
the studies usually have been done with longer fasts, say a week, two weeks is the subjects of this do it once a year, for example. Mm-hmm. And there's been published studies where they do measurements before they start the fasting, you know, glucose, insulin, blood pressure, etc. And then at the end of the week or two weeks of fasting, and they show improvements. But then I haven't, and I've talked to the these uh, scientists who've done these studies. They don't really have data, you know, following these people. You know, are they are those sh- apparent short-term benefits? How long do they last? Right. In animals, anyway, we've done studies where we. Uh, put animals on alternate day fasting, uh, monitor their heart rate and blood pressure, uh, resting heart rate and blood pressure go down within about two weeks and then more so by a month and then they stay down for at least another few months. Which and Then we, uh, we give them, we take them off of intermittent fasting so they're back where they have, always have food. And uh, within two weeks, uh, the heart rate and blood pressure are back to where they were. So I think these, uh, you know, it, it's better long-term to, just like exercise, if you get, if you stop exercising, it doesn't take long before you get out of shape. Right. So we don't really know if, you know, uh, a long fast once a year is equivalent to, uh, you know, always doing an 18-6. What about, you know, so, there, so there's a variety of approaches. You mentioned the 5-2. There's the 18-6 where people only eat within a six-hour window. There's the OMED, O-M-E-D, one me- or O-M-A-D, one meal a day, OMED, uh, where people only eat one meal a day, so they're going 24 hours every day. Um, there is, of course, uh, people doing longer fasts once a year, once a quarter, or, you know, et cetera. Um, do we know anything about the kind of relative benefits from one regimen to another? Uh, there have been no head-to-head comparisons, uh, uh, not only in humans, but really uh, not in rodents. It turns out investigators, uh, they kind of settle on one intermittent fasting regimen and then they want don't want to change it because they're, and expanding upon the initial studies and the initial data. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we, okay. no so we don't comparison. Know. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Um, now, what about when people are fasting? Um, you know, I, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, that most people during their fasting periods, whatever regimen they're doing, are still drinking water or, you know, black coffee, tea without any, you know, sugar in it, uh, you know, regular tea. Um that's that's fine, right? That doesn't uh, affect your development of ketosis. That's right. Is there any, um, you know, thought, has anyone looked at fasting with or without liquid? I mean, is, is a full fast with, I mean, I would, I have not done it uh, to, to fast without any intake of any liquid. Um, it, I would think you'd be, you get into trouble with dehydration, but is that, does anybody, do we know anything about whether that's beneficial or not? Uh there's no data I know that suggests that that not taking in fluids during the fasting period is beneficial, um, and I wouldn't recommend it. So I think it's important for people to stay hydrated. Right, totally, and that's my thought too. And I'm glad to know there's no no reason pushing me to try to do it without water. 
Um, now, what about electrolytes? If people are fasting, you know, you read a lot, uh, kind of colloquially, there's a lot online. If you look at the various fasting you know, websites and people will say, you know, you really need to supplement sodium, magnesium, potassium. Is that true? Should people be taking supplements during their fasting periods? No, don't need to. No, Your body will. Yeah, yeah. Again, go back to the evolutionary perspective, right? It's uh, no, but these, sh- these, uh, particularly these very short fasts, you know, whatever, uh, eighteen hours a day or a couple days a week, eating only one meal, it's not an issue. We're, we're designed to. Uh, our electrolytes aren't going to get out of whack that quickly. Right. So as long as you have healthy kidneys and, you know, you don't have any otherwise electrolyte abnormalities or ability to handle, you know, your, your body can handle it normally, you should be fine fasting. And that, as you said, that makes sense, right? Nobody back when we were hunter gatherers and, and were, you know, in a particularly lean time was uh, supplementing with uh, sodium pills. <laughs> so, um, you know, now it's possible that the water back then had more electrolytes and it certainly wasn't being filtered and clean, but uh but I think you're right that um, you probably don't for short fast and for longer fast. I mean, you know, again, I, I keep referring to Jason Fung, but, you know, he talks about uh, having people doing 30, 40, 50 day fasts, um, you know, if they're, you know, 400 pounds with severe diabetes and, uh, you know, need very little, if any, electrolyte supplementation, even that long. So you'd imagine that, you know, you probably are fine for even two, three, four days without it. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right. Are there subsets of people who should not fast, uh, even for these short intermittent types? Uh, for example, maybe patients with type one diabetes, uh, anyone you'd say, uh, you know, look probably better, um, not to do this or no. Uh, I, I would say, uh, perhaps, uh, elderly people who are with really low BMI or certainly if they're becoming frail children, uh, at least little children, uh, Although there is some interest, in, there's increase in childhood and adolescent obesity. So there's some interest in, uh, you know, might the switching eating patterns for these kids uh, you know, help them keep their weight down? Uh, yeah, type 1 diabetes, there's at least one published study uh, where they, you know, they carefully monitored their the insulin-dependent patients uh, and were able to get them to switch to an intermittent fasting eating pattern. It's just a matter of getting the insulin level right. Uh, Right. So, but I think, you know, for anyone listening who has type 1 diabetes, I wouldn't suggest they try this uh, at this point. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Let me ask you about this subset. So we talked about how um, when you fast, you can actually get an increased sympathetic tone. Um, so do you think that would be potentially a problem for people with coronary artery disease? Uh, uh, well, well, actually, you get increased parasympathetic tone. Oh, over the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We've shown that clearly in rats and mice. It's also been shown in humans by Luigi Fontana at WashU. Right. No, I totally agree with that. I was thinking more during the fast. So for example, oh. you know, if you're doing a two or three day fast, you often, you know, for we talked about how in the morning you may have, you know, I think there's some studies showing increased norepinephrine, for example, when you're, yeah. when you are not eating, is yeah. there any reason to think that 
you know, that increased norepinephrine level might be harmful to people with coronary artery disease in terms of, you know, heart rate, et cetera, or not? That we uh, I don't know of any, any data that would address that question. Okay. And I can tell you that although I feel more awake when fasted in the morning, I don't, I don't think I'm tachycardic. <laughs> so, I, no. so I think, I think probably that's not a factor. Um, but one thing that people do talk about, um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this or know of any studies looking at this, um, is that when fasting people, uh, again, not, not really for the 18 hours, but, uh, you know, after when they get into the longer two to three days and more sometimes can have trouble sleeping. I think again, because that sympathetic discharge, um, mm. makes it a little hard to sleep. And again, if we think evolutionarily, it makes sense. If you were fasting, you'd want to be running after a deer to try to get some food, not, uh, you know, not sleeping all day. So, um, do you, is there, do you ever have well, thoughts on that? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I don't know about these longer fasts, but the short, uh, daily fasting periods or two days a week, uh, eating only one meal, essentially, I'm not aware of sleeping problems. Yeah, and, I think you're right. And, and also Jed, uh, Getting back to a comment you made earlier about circadian rhythms um, and, and and thinking about sleep, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if you if you go to sleep and and you haven't eaten for say whatever uh, eight ten hours. I, I don't know. It, you know, that may make it harder, although you may adjust that. Any of these things, maybe you can get adapted to over time. Right. And I, I completely agree with you. I actually don't think that with these shorter fasts, even 24 hours, that that I have noticed any trouble sleeping. It's only when you get into a little bit longer. Um, and it's not that it's impossible to sleep, but it's just uh, interesting that sometimes you can feel a little bit more awake at night, even uh, when you haven't eaten for a few days. Um so let's move to the perioperative arena. Um, so, you know, uh, some studies um, uh, like the one from uh, Mitchell and colleagues from 2013 that you mentioned in your article show improved outcomes with pre-op fasting. Uh, but then, of course, our current uh, movement in the perioperative arena is really toward more and more of these ERAS pathways, that's early recovery after surgery, uh, that call for, you know, patients taking a, a drink of carbohydrates, you know, 30 cc's of, of a carb-rich drink uh, right up to, you know, an hour or two before surgery, um, which obviously seems to be the opposite of fasting before surgery. Is there, you know, and why do we, th how do we reconcile that? Is, is, do you think there's, uh, and I'm sure we need to do more work on this, but do you think that uh, fasting before surgery is advantageous or not, or maybe we're looking at two different things? Well, my educated guess on uh, this question would be that uh, if someone, if, if the surgery, for example, if the surgery is elective and, you know, it can be scheduled, say, a, a month down the road, then if, my guess would be that if the person gets adapted to intermittent fasting before the surgery, it would be beneficial uh, because you see, we see some of these uh, preconditioning-like effects where there's increased cellular stress resistance. And then once they're adapted, then 
in the recovery period, you'd have this switching back and forth uh, between the stress resistance and and growth and repair mode uh, modes. Um, however, you know, if you if there's someone that's not adapted to intermittent fasting, and then you just uh, you know do it fast perioperatively, it uh, may not have any beneficial effects. Uh, so, you know, there's some inflammation associated with eating. It turns out every time you eat a meal and uh, McDonald's type food uh, more so than healthy food, but anyway, there's actually an increase in circulating pro-inflammatory cytokines hmm. that occurs acutely. Uh, and so it's particularly so with sugars and um, there's some data all to uh, Luigi Ferrucci, who was at National Institute on Aging, did a study that indicates with um, essentially he had a meat like Big Mac and fries and that also, now these aren't huge increases, but they're statistically significant. So, you know, and then there's this whole issue about uh, inflam whether inflammation, well, there's inflammation has both good and bad aspects with related, with, in relation to tissue injury. Uh, some inflammation is good, uh, at least acutely, but chronically, not so good. So, right. Yeah. So it sounds like, uh, you, you know, to the best that we can, we can kind of guess right now, it's not that an acute fast, especially not in someone not accustomed to it right before surgery is beneficial, but that, uh, being, uh, having this intermittent fasting and accustomizing your body to it leading up to surgery might help uh, with outcomes uh, after surgery because your body now has had, as you say, kind of a preconditioning and then we'll be able to handle the stresses of the recovery period better. Yes. Okay. And then what, are there other considerations in the perioperative arena that we have any information on postoperatively, for example? I mean, we, again, uh, you cite some benefits in animals with spinal cord injury um, to, when they fast after the injury and in reducing damage and, and improving outcomes. Um, is there any reason to think that, because we're again, with the ERAS movement, we're really pushing patients to eat as quickly as possible after surgery. Is there any reason to think that fasting after uh, a surgical uh, injury uh, may be beneficial in terms of anything like wound healing, recovery, um, et cetera? Uh, I think it would be good here to talk about ischemic tissue injury uh, that's been uh, we're involved in studies in animal models of stroke and myocardial infarction where we found really quite dramatic uh, tissue-sparing effects of intermittent fasting if, if the occlusion of the artery in the brain or the coronary artery uh, was done after the animals had been adapted to the everyday fasting for well, we, we just did a couple months, but uh, there has been some interest in post-stroke intermittent fasting. There's a, 
uh, one animal study showing improved recovery following stroke with intermittent fasting. Um, I had a colleague down at in, in Fairfax at uh, what is it? Uh, Nova. I know. Nova. Yeah. Yeah. He was the head of their neuroscience and neurology and. He was gearing up to do a trial, but then a kind of, of intermittent fasting post-stroke, but he hasn't got around to it. There's <laughs> there's problems in these in humans with these uh, trials and stroke, or particularly stroke. Maybe I don't know tissue injury. There's so much variability between individuals in terms of uh, in the case of these ischemic insults. You know, which artery is affected, you know, how long is it uh, blocked with the clot before there's reperfusion, et cetera, et cetera. And then the metabolic state, probably genetic factors we don't understand. Uh, and, and, you know, it would make sense that may be similar to uh, tra traumatic tissue injury, whether through accident or through a surgeon's scalpel. Um, there's a lot of variability probably between patients and it's, uh, the clinical trials that are, you've got to have really good inclusion, exclusion criteria and, and endpoints that uh, are most likely to yield a significant result. Right. Well, so it sounds like we'll be getting more information. I mean, there's reason to think, and this does sound so much like ischemic preconditioning, that uh, maybe being accustomed to having exposure to the stress of intermittent fasting may help uh, post-surgery, post-MI, post-stroke, but kind of more data to come on that. Yep. Great. Well, Mark, this has been just fascinating, and uh, I've loved having this conversation. Um, but let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Uh, so I'll ask you, anything to recommend that our audience check out uh, when they have time? Well, I, I would suggest uh, it's been a few years ago, but I gave a TED Talk. Uh, it's easy to find. They just Google my name and TED, and I guess fasting. Um, and so on the internet, it's actually hard to find the real uh, clear information. So I think uh, your listeners should um, maybe focus on recent review articles that they find on PubMed uh, right. uh, rather than right now, if you Google intermittent fasting, the first I don't know how many pages are just these random people who are, uh, I guess they're trying to make money or something. I don't know how you shouldn't make money on intermittent fasting, but right. anyway, they have their own little angle on it. Exactly. But the real data is available, obviously, in scientific studies. And then is that what your TED Talk is on, kind of the, the data behind uh, intermittent fasting? Yeah. And it was focused on the brain and it has in there historical perspective from uh, going back to Roman times uh, when uh, back then if someone uh, was having epileptic seizures, they were thought to be possessed by demons. And I guess just empirically by trial and error, they found if they 
lock these demon-possessed individuals in a room for several days, the demons would go away. And uh, scientifically, probably what's happening is their ketones going up because uh, they didn't feed them when they locked them in the room. Right. Uh, and ketones are very good at suppressing epileptic seizure. In fact, ketogenic diets are still prescribed in some cases, uh, people with epilepsy. So anyway, right. it's, it's got historical perspective, but also basic science. Um, yeah, but I kind of made it, it, it's a TED Talk, so it's got to be, have a lot of angles on it. Uh, right. That's great. Oh, I will check that out for sure and recommend folks do. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, my random recommendation, completely unrelated to anything we've been talking about. Um, and I can't remember if I've, I've already recommended this or not. So listeners, if, if I already did this, I apologize for repeating myself. But Monopoly Deal is a game someone recommended to me. My wife and I got it. It is if you like Monopoly, but you don't want to spend, you know, one, two, three hours playing Monopoly game. This is a card game version of Monopoly that takes about 15 minutes to play. It's a lot of fun. It's doable with kids. So I can play with my seven and eight year old, but also my wife and I can play just the two of us and have fun. And you can play with two, three or four people. So it's very flexible. It's short, which is really key, obviously for those of us with busy lives and, uh, and a ton of fun. So I'm not receiving any money from whoever makes Monopoly deal, but I do like the game and recommend people check it out. Um, all right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking so much time uh, to come on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you around Hopkins. Okay, Jed, I enjoyed our conversation and I hope your readers will find something in there that of interest. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Thanks. All right. All right. That was really fascinating. I certainly found it to be, and I, I certainly hope all of you did too. Uh, let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say as well. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we, the podcast, are at ACRAC Podcast. And, of course, we have an ACRAC Facebook group you can check out as well. If you're a fan of the show uh, and you haven't already, or even if you have but not in a little while, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also, of course, make a donation anytime at paypal.me slash ACRAC. Huge thanks to those who are already patrons and have already made donations, and we really appreciate it. Big thanks to our intern, Kimia Akash Cooley, to Dr. Brian Park, and to... April Lou for their fantastic work on the outlines for some of the episodes. And of course, thank you to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed the original ACRAC music. You can see his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Mark Madsen, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.